This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is episode 140, 140, which means that it is another Fly Fishing Accusations podcast. However, no one has accused me of anything recently, at least not to my face or to my email box. So instead, we'll deal with some questions and comments that have come from listeners and readers, and I always enjoy getting things. I've got some good ones this go around. A variety of topics. The first one comes from Jesse, and Jesse writes, Hey Matthew, loved your wading boots video on YouTube. Thanks a lot. I can't make up my mind on what I should get between the Astral shoes or the Reddington boots. I like the flex in the shoe, but my waders have a stocking foot, and I don't know if I'd be able to fit my foot comfortably in them. I like to ride my bike to go fish, and I'd like to have something that is light, but maybe would have enough room for the stocking. And I'm also living in Ontario, so I'd be fishing in the summer, but also in chilly weather. Any recommendations? Thanks for your time. Take care, Jesse. Jesse, you are not the only person to ask me that question. I think I got a couple of comments on the YouTube video as well as some other emails about this very question. So uh, what Jesse is referring to is a YouTube video I did months ago. Uh, and all I was doing in it was breaking down three basic styles of wading boots. Uh, there are the heavy-duty wading boots, and this is kind of what most of us fished out of maybe 20 years ago. Very rigid, very um, stiff in the ankle and the shaft, a lot of ankle support, a lot of um, protection to your, your foot, and they're great for long days in the water because they actually add a lot of stability but it kind of feels like you're walking in Frankenstein boots. Now, technology has come a long way, but there's still boots that are definitely very rigid. And I have a pair of Corker Dark Horse that are they're light, but generally speaking, compared to like my hiking boots and like my cowboy boots and things like that, they're heavy. But you're wading in them, so it's okay. But they have a lot of support, and they're great boots. And then there's kind of the mid 
range option. And for those, I use the Reddington Benchmark boots. These are an ultra light boot. I mean, they weigh hardly anything, but they're still going to provide a lot of toe protection and some significant ankle support, not to the same degree as a heavy duty pair of boots, but the purpose of these is kind of an everyday wear boot, something that you can get in and out of quickly and that you're able to move around with a lot of ease. This is my kind of uh, normal like four out of five times out in the water wading boot, whether it be fresh water or salt water. Uh, this is the, the kind of boot that I use. And then the third option is a wet wading shoe, which isn't actually even designed for fly fishing. It's designed for kayaking. And the particular one that I have is from Astral, and it's the Brewer. And right now they are you have the Brewer 2.0, which is out. I've got the original Brewer. Absolutely love it. It weighs absolutely nothing. You get no ankle protection. Only the toe, only toe protection you get is that thin uh, nylon. I mean, it's it's rugged. Um, I've got little like nicks in mine, but from years and years of wet waiting, nothing's torn or, or come undone in the stitching. Um, but it, it's what I use when I'm wet waiting in the summertime. So those three um, models were simply examples of a heavy duty boot, kind of a ultralight boot, and then a wading shoe. Um, and so Jesse's question is a good question. And a lot of people ask that. Now, I would say that the long and the short of it is I would not recommend a shoe, a wet wading shoe to be used also with your waders. Now, I do have experience with trying that a few years ago. Uh, one of the big brands, I think it was Orvis. I think that's who it was. I had a pair for a while. I was kind of given a test drive and they came with a neoprene booty that looked kind of like a crew sock that you put on first before you slid your foot into this wet wading shoe. And the idea there was, A, you had this sock that fit in the shoe perfectly and it also offered some protection to your foot from gravel and things like that, as well as, as um, a little bit of like ankle protection. But then you could take that out and then wear those shoes on the bottom of your normal stocking foot waders. Well, here's the, the issue with that. Uh, first and foremost, the uh, wader sock was like a one millimeter neoprene, very, very thin. So if you were going to put on normal neoprene booties, which usually are a three millimeter, um, sometimes they're reinforced, they're even heavier than that. And then with a heavy sock underneath it, it didn't fit right. It didn't feel right. And then also there was something bizarre about having on chest waders and having exposed ankles. Uh, I mean, there, there was my neoprene booty was still there, but one, it felt weird. And two, I didn't like the idea if I was doing more rugged weighting, if I were to take a spill and my ankle were to slide down in between two sharp rocks in the river, that I could potentially put a gash in the neoprene booty of my stocking foot waders. And now it is a $350 repair. Um, that's not the place in your waders you want to have a failure. You can repair the breathable fabric like from your shins up with relative ease and it's gonna last, but uh, repairing neoprene is going to require some big bulky glue jobs and that's not the kind of thing that you're gonna wanna have up against your ankle or up against your shin when you're waiting. So all that to say, I'm not a huge fan of trying to figure out a way to put my stocking foot waders into low top ultralight wading shoes. Um, now, I, I get it. You, you want the best of both worlds. If that's the case, then I would absolutely suggest that mid-range boot. It's the kind of thing where I hike in those all the time. Uh, if I am going to be encountering some terrain that's a little bit more rocky, that I'm going to have a, a need for a little bit more sure-footedness than I get with that 
low top kayaking shoe, then I will absolutely walk somewhere with those um, with those lightweight wading boots on my back or with with them on my my feet even. Um, it's one of the things where I'll, I'll, a lot of times I will walk in with them on my back. I'll have some like uh, hiking shoes on or some running shoes on, and then after fishing with my wading boots on, I just end up wearing them back. It's not that inconvenient, not that bad. As for riding a bike, I don't know if I can uh, give you advice with that, Jesse, but uh, you know, I I'm a big fan of finding the right tool for the job and really finding something that's the most versatile first. And then as you add things or as more means are available to you, that's when you go ahead and add on that second option. Which So it sounds like I would say for, for most people, go for that, that kind of lightweight wading boot. Um, unless you're going to be fishing for steelhead all the time, unless you're going to be fishing on rivers where you're going to be standing in one place and you want that support because you're going to be standing still um, or you're fishing on incredibly uneven surfaces and so you're going to be like leaning into your feet quite a bit, then I would say get that mid-range boot that's very, very light, still offers good ankle support and good toe protection, and then based upon what you do kind of second most or what you kind of want to do, then either go up or go down. So hopefully that's helpful. Uh, go check out that video if you haven't watched it on YouTube. I'd like to be adding some more videos. That seems like a, just a good idea in the coming uh, weeks and months. So we'll see if that happens, if you'll see more things on my YouTube channel. People are subscribing, which is great. Um, I'm not in it for monetizing or anything like that, but uh, hopefully I can put some more content on there for all the folks that are subscribing. The second question that I got comes from an email from Bob. Bob has a really good question. Bob says, hello, I discovered you several months ago and have become a regular listener slash reader of yours. I look forward to your podcasts and articles. I have a question for you, and I'm interested in your thoughts and not requesting a podcast or article on the subject, although here we are, I guess, uh, though I have searched around your site seeking an answer. What do you do with your old flies, those flies that were tied or purchased for that one piece of water that you will likely not return to, and if you do, you would tie a new fly or purchase more of those flies that might be just a little too beat up but don't look too bad to others. I recently reorganized my fly boxes and have a collection of odd end flies that I just can't throw them away. I'm going to establish a fly barrier at one of my favorite places and we'll put a few there. I do not have children, don't have friends and kids that fish, so I can't send them there. Would you be willing to send a few ideas my way? Thank you for being a regular companion on my way to work and guilty pleasure while at work. Bob. Well, I'm happy to do that, Bob, and I'm happy to do that, Bob's boss, if you happen to catch him listening to this episode. So, I actually respond to Bob when he sent that email and uh, gave him this piece of advice, but I've got some some more uh, to, to add to it. Uh, what what I do is I have a big Plano box. I have lots of big Plano boxes. Like These are the ones that are um, maybe like 14 inches by 10 inches or something like that with all the compartments in them. And what I do when a fly is like an odd fly that I'm just... Uh, it doesn't fit anywhere. It doesn't seem like it has uh, a real good spot. Maybe it is a little bit chewed up. Maybe I tied it and I'm thinking it's looking ugly. Instead of throwing it away right away, I put it in this box. I kind of organize things by color, by by dry fly, by streamer, by nymph, and, and I just kind of keep them there. And every once in a while, I look in that box and I see something that, oh, that might be useful or that's something that I can put in my kid's fly box. But that's where things are generally stored. I've got some really off-looking flies in there. But you know what? It doesn't take up any more space. It's it's a couple of big fl uh, fly boxes that are there that now I have something where if yeah, if, if maybe a, a friend's kid did get into fly fishing or a friend got into fly fishing and say, hey, these are all kind of trashy, but 
don't worry about losing them. The, they, they look a little bit beat up or they're really random. Uh, definitely use them to your heart's content. Uh, so, so that's one thing that I do. Um, the second thing I do that I also suggest is a lot of my random trout flies. So I go to a stream and they've got some bizarre bug that everybody raves about. And I get home thinking, I'm never going to cast this for any of my trout. Um, what I end up doing is putting it in my warm water box. So I've got a panfish box of dry flies and like nymphs and then a panfish box of just random weird bugs. And more often than not, those are the flies that end up working really, really well. So that is probably the most practical way to use your odd and end flies. But then I do want to reinforce Bob's own idea, which is establishing a flybrary. So go to flybrary.com, I believe, or just Google flybrary, F-L-Y-B-R-A-R-Y, and it is an awesome program. You're going to see them all over the country. If you follow them on Instagram, you see that they put these fly patches up, or actually you put these fly patches up. They send them to you and you put them fly patches up or you create them and you let them know that you created one and where it is. And on popular rivers and ponds and boat docks and gas station pumps, all over the country, there are these community kind of give a fly, take a fly initiatives. Uh, I did a write up on it for one of its anniversaries. I can't remember if it's two years, three years, whatever, whatever it is. It's uh, on the website. If you put flybrary into casting across the search engine, it'll come up there. And I bet that uh, that will pop up on Google if you put casting across and flybrary will probably be the first thing that pops up. But that is a great thing to do with your flies that aren't terrible. You know, this is probably better for your odd and end flies, or maybe a fly that you just don't like, you don't have confidence in. Get rid of it. There's no use in cluttering up your box. If if you could fit maybe like three more clousers that you have confidence in and take out one or two flies that you don't like, then that is well worth it. And somebody else might have a great need for it. And at the end of the day, if you bought it, maybe it's four bucks. And if you tied it, it's, you know, pennies. So definitely throw it up on a flyberry, um, throw it in a warm water fly box, throw it in a storage box that you can push out of the way and make room in your fly box. Because I'll have that sometimes where my fly boxes get cluttered and I end up missing things. And then I end up going out and buying it if it's something I don't like tying or tying more of them if I think that I don't have any. And it's not that having more flies than you need is bad, but if you could use your time, energy, and effort on something else because you actually have those flies in your box, then that's a better use of your time, energy, and effort. Similarly, if you're on the water and you can't find a fly because your fly box is too cluttered, then uh, this is something that you probably should have done a long time ago. But, you know, that's one of your great kind of off-season activities is to pull everything out of the boxes, uh, take a look at stuff, make sure your hooks are in good order, make sure your hook points are um, sharp, and if not, give them a good filing. trim any of the little monofilament or fluorocarbon tags off of the hook eyes, check to see if any of the thread on the heads of the flies is coming undone, and then just put them into piles and uh, fix them as needed and then put them back in. And if anything is looking a little bit rough or weird, then just do one of the three things that I suggested. So thanks again, Bob. That is a great question. I don't know if that's a great answer or not, but I think the flyberry is probably your best answer. So you, you answered that yourself. Third email. Email? That's what some people say, like me. Email. Uh, This comes from Matt. So he says, good morning, Matthew. I just wanted to write in because I figured you might find this humorous. 
I went out to do some fly fishing this morning, and as usual, I do my podcast listening on the road. I couldn't help but laugh at the fact that I was driving to Mossy Creek with a Bojangles bag in the seat next to me and a cup of their coffee in the cup holder while I was listening to you discuss your Spring Creek adventures, which sounded an awful lot like you were fishing Mossy. Anyway, great podcast, and I hope your time back in Virginia has been good. My family is coming, and uh, we're going to go fishing, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, Matt. So, yes, I was fishing Mossy Creek, and I wrote about Mossy Creek and talked about Mossy Creek uh, a couple weeks ago when I was in Virginia. Great creek, uh, just absolutely gorgeous. And it's one of those places where it's not spot burning. My goodness. It's one of, if not the most popular stream between Mossy and Rapidan, um, and uh, a couple of their White Oak Canyon and uh, things like that in Virginia. Those are that's that's where people go to fish. There's lots of small streams that I would feel bad about talking about. But if you say I went and fished Mossy Creek, just like I went and fished the South Fork of the Shenandoah, it's not that big of a deal. People are going to go there, and the fish aren't going to uh, be in any sort of peril because a couple more anglers are fishing there. And certainly not you know because I'm I'm spoiling it for anybody. But the the purpose of sharing this uh, this email from Matt is just um, the cool kind of uh, small fly fishing world that we live in. Um, It really is a small world. There are so many anglers out there, and the vast majority of us fish on the same water. Now, you might have your private stream honey hole, or you might have the spot that you have scouted and you are very confident that you're the only one that fishes there. You know, your, your footprints are the only footprints that you see on a stream. I've got a stream like that, and, and I love that. Um, but I know that that is the anomaly. In the grand scheme of the rivers I fish, the places on the coast that I fish, a lot of other people fish those places. And more often than not, as I'm having conversations with people, we end up saying, oh, you fished here? Oh, by this rock? Oh, at this time of day? That's my favorite place to fish there too. And for a while, especially when I was younger, that made me almost like anxious. Like, oh, they're going to catch my fish. They're going to catch my trout. They're going to catch my bass. And I've kind of grown out of that, partially because I'm not on the water enough to really be possessive about any sort of fish. And secondly, um, whether you know it or not, people are fishing in your spots. And so if you go and you feel like you've had that day to yourself um, and you, you know, you're not going to go back for a month uh, and you go back a month later and you have a great time, uh, just because you weren't there watching other people fish didn't mean that other people weren't fishing. You get what I'm saying? Um, and, and so uh, I think it's something to be embraced something that can build community. Um, I love getting feedback like what Matt just sent me um, from folks who are sharing their experience of fishing on the Latorte in Pennsylvania, their experiences of fishing uh, up in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, uh, fishing the Massachusetts coast, uh, fishing in Rocky Mountain National Park, in the Driftless in Wisconsin, in the TBA rivers down in Arkansas, all these places that I have fished that I've talked about on the podcast, that I've talked about um, on the website. It, it's really neat to have those shared experiences and to be able to have kind of a, a offshoot of that fly shop, uh, you know, little trout town pub conversation that you would normally have, but do it online or do it at a trade show or, or do it when you run to somebody at a fly fishing event. So embrace it. Um, obviously, there, there's a lot of negative sides to a lot of people fishing the same water, but 
if you're talking about like-minded anglers, there's actually, I believe, more more power in that because the more like-minded anglers that are on the water, one, um, that's more eyes on the water, more people who are going to be able to call out nonsense and call out mess and be able to be vigilant about taking care of the the um, the resource and being good stewards, but also it um, it creates a sense of ownership um, among among a group of people. And so they're going to take care of that water. They know that it's not just for them. No one's going to abuse a fish because, uh, you know, they think, oh, this is just mine. I can do whatever I want with it. Knowing that other people are going to be falling behind you is going to maybe not change what you do, but give you appreciation for what you are doing. So uh, I know that wasn't like a fishing tip, but maybe it can help you with your perspective on where you're fishing and who you're fishing with. And, you know, you're not rivals. Maybe you have that one guy who low holes you or beats you to your spot every time or something like that. I've had those experiences where there's, it, it seems like the same person was always kind of where I wanted to be, but they probably think that way about you. So why not become allies as opposed to angling enemies? Um, that's worth a worth an article or something like that in the future. I think. But uh, anyway, thank you for those emails. I got plenty more. I got lots more more stuff. I, I, uh, I got a um, kind of a bittersweet email from a, a friend in the fly fishing industry who's who's leaving. Um, and I, I do wish him the best. If, if you are listening, I've reached out to you. And, uh, um, you know, that's happened a lot. I've, I've been doing this for about six years now within the casting across context. Um, did it plenty of years before that um, with, with some, some retail sales and some other stuff. So there's a lot of people that come and go and change. And um, there's some really, truly genuine, good people who are doing this for the right reasons. And so for all of the weirdness and the flack, the meme accounts put out there, you know, there's so many good people in fly fishing. Um, social media is not the barometer of what the fly fishing industry and the fly fishing culture is. So um, I'm all about it. That's part of the reason why I do what I do. If you have any questions, comments, or again, accusations about what I write or what I say, feel free to reach out Matthew at castingacross.com or chirp me through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, or any other social media that I'm on. That's really about it. But Okay, this week on castingacross.com, there was two articles. The first one is called Throwback Gear Review, the Scott Alpha. So um, Scott is one of those fly rod companies that just kind of consistently does good stuff and always ends up on the top of people's lists of quality fly rods, but just isn't super showy. Um, but great people talking about what I was just you know talking about before. Uh, every trade show, every interaction I've had with the folks at Scott has been like super chill and incredibly pleasant. Um, and my very first saltwater fly rod was the Scott Alpha Series, a nine foot eight weight, and it is still my go-to smallmouth bass rod and one of the rods that I throw most frequently, even in the surf here in New England. Even though it's kind of a on the slower side of medium fast for a floating fly line and a smaller fly but a weighted fly it's one of my favorite rods to throw into the surf for stripers so i talk a little bit about getting the rod and uh, my 20 plus years of fishing with it they they don't make any of the alpha series anymore um, I'm not even sure what the spiritual successor to the rod is in their lineup right now, but uh, the rod went through four res- revisions um, before it was discontinued into like 2017, I think. But I still have mine, fish mine, love mine. It's a great rod, and uh, it, it, writing this has made me like want to look at Scott more. Um, so I'll be checking that out, and you should as well. But that article again is um, 
called uh, Throwback Gear Review Scott Alpha Series. And then on Wednesday, the article is called Why I Got Skunked, A Handy Excuse Guide. Something I don't do enough is write fly fishing humor. This isn't particularly funny. You're not going to be rolling around laughing, but it might make you smile um, because using uh, eight alliterative categories, all the letter P, um, I write about some of the excuses people make for not catching fish. And some of them uh, may hit close to home, but trust me, plenty of them are things that I have said um, on my own. So definitely uh, give that one a read and find the humor in it. This week's recommendation on the podcast is something that I mentioned back in a gift guide a couple of months ago. I think it was for Father's Day, uh, but I wanted to kind of hone in a little bit more particularly for this podcast. So by and large, looking at the demographics of the folks that listen to the podcast and read the website, uh, you are trout anglers. Now, if you're a panfish person or a bass person or a saltwater person, you're not left out. It's just you are in the minority, relatively speaking. Um, so what I wanted to share in this recommendation this week are two field kits from Reddington. So I think Reddington makes great products, not pretentious stuff at all, just hardworking, um, great gear at a reasonable price. So they came out with field kits at the beginning of this year. Now they've always made kind of prepackaged combos, things that come in a, a cardboard box with everything that you need in it. Most fly fishing companies do. But if you've noticed if, as you go into fly shops and, and maybe looked online, virtually every company does this and they might have one that's in a kind of mid-range uh, price, uh, price point. So the field kits come in a number of different configurations, but two of them are the coastal cold water and the tropical salt water. And the reason why I'm pointing this out in this episode for the recommendation is if you are a trout angler and you value good gear and you want to make that jump to fishing for saltwater, so if you're up by me and you live in maybe New England or maybe down in the mid-Atlantic and you want to fish for stripers, but you don't want to spend a thousand bucks, which is very easy to do on a rod and reel, let alone line, or maybe if you live down like the, the Carolinas or Virginia and you want to go out and fish for things like redfish and you're in the same boat. For $349.99, you can get a great rod. They are a rod that is unique just for these field kits. And then the reel, which is the behemoth, which is an awesome solid reel. Now, given you use it in the saltwater, you're going to have to take care of it. But I do that regardless of the reel that I'm using. And then some real, real top of the line, high quality reel line, which if you've heard me talk before, line is uh, the most important thing for good long casts. Uh, a good line will make a good rod great. Um, and so that's what you get here. I fish with the coastal cold water one, the nine weight, and then the... Um, the eight weight is the tropical saltwater one. So you can kind of go back and forth and, and, and look at those. But I'll put a link to the field kits from Reddington on the show notes of this podcast page on castingacross.com. But definitely check them out. Again, if you know good gear and you want something that is not super entry level, but something that will definitely last you and it'll be able to stay in your arsenal as you continue to fish this, or if it's something you just do a few times a year, but you don't want to get something chintzy, definitely check out the Reddington Field Kits. They are nothing but quality. I've really enjoyed using the Coastal Cold Water Field Kit for the last few months. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe and favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.